Good morning. It is nice to see all of you this morning. Thank you, Neil. Uh, before we jump into the lesson, we've got a few announcements that uh, we want to bring to your attention. You'll find details about these and more information in your bulletin. So uh, let's go ahead and jump right in. Oops. Um, okay. Was that? Can you? Oh yeah, there we go. Thank you. All right, perfect. Um, I, I never know what I've touched, and so um, and then uh, w- once you go down a certain path, sometimes it's hard to get back to where you started from. Um, school supplies. If you haven't brought the school supplies, uh, next week is the last day. Uh, next next day, uh, the last day to collect those. And so uh, please take a look in the bulletin and provide those. Um, uh, you can get them at Walmart. You can get them anywhere, dollar store. Uh, but it would. Help Help out these children immensely. Uh, there's nothing like starting the school year off with brand new pencils and uh, uh, notebooks that have never been written in. There's just something about starting the year off right, and uh, many of us have had that privilege and that uh, that luxury, and some won't. So let's uh, help out any way we can. Um, very shortly, within just three weeks, we're going to have our ice cream social. Now, this is good news and bad news because what the ice cream social means is that school is just around the corner, and in fact, uh, um, by by this date, uh, you will be uh, uh, way closer to school than many of you students will want. Uh, but uh, but let's focus on the positive right here. We've got ice cream, so just think ice cream. Uh, something we're doing different. Jeff has kind of organized a um, uh, what's it called a, a bake off for the kids. Now, um, I, I talked to him about this because I don't know if any of you were ever in Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts actually, and you did what was called the Pinewood Derby. Um, and, and what happens with the Pinewood Derby is that the dads get a little bit hyper-involved, and, uh, and it ends up being some of the finest uh, balsa wood cars that a 10-year-old could ever make. <laughs> and so let, let's keep this for the children's bake-off. The kids are going to do this. Now, obviously, they need a little bit of supervision. You don't want them around um, a, a flames and, and hot ovens unsupervised, uh, but as much as possible, let them kind of put it together. And um, and if you're judging, uh, please be kind uh, and, uh, and, and be brave and... Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, because uh, we're not sure what we're going to get, but it's going to be a fun time, and I can't wait, uh, on August 17th. And then we have our back-to-school Sunday on August 25th. Uh, this will be after school has begun, but this will be a bilingual assembly where the kids will be with us and we'll be able to highlight uh, a number of the transitions that they'll be making. And then that evening we'll have a uh, kind of our, our family night, our quarterly family night, and we'll have some special activities and events. And so uh, we want to make sure that everyone plans on on being there for, for that. All in. Now, we're not going to be talking about poker or, or gambling today, but, uh, but it does have to do with money. I, I will uh, uh, give you that much. Uh, last week, when we concluded the reading of the text and the lesson, the, the last phrase was, and from then on, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Because they had been asking him question after question after question. They'd been putting him on the spot. They've been trying to nail him down in some sort of uh, hypocrisy or some sort of incorrect answer, some sort of inconsistency. 
Mark suggests that all those questions took place in one day, which led one commentator, Ralph Martin, to say, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. Because what Jesus does is now he says, okay, you've asked your questions. Now it's my turn. Let me ask you a question. And so he goes right at the Jewish leaders. And actually, it's a it's a question that's in the form of a riddle. And so before we get into that, I want to share one of my riddles with you. Now, uh, if, if uh, a certain former summer youth intern were here, she would say that this is one of those dad jokes. I still don't know what a dad joke is, but I guess it's any joke that a dad says. Um, <laughs> but, but I take it to be kind of um, uh, uh, derogatory, but I still don't know why. But I'm a dad, and so I'm happy to, to, to tell dad jokes. So here's the riddle. There's a family made up of mom, dad, and a baby. The last name of the family is Bigger. Which one is the biggest? Mom, dad, or baby? Well, the baby, obviously, because the baby is a little bigger. <laughs> hey, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. There were a couple groans. There were a couple laughs. I mean, isn't the baby was a little bigger. You get it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Here comes the here. Go, there's the groans. Okay. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> so, with that in mind, uh, Jesus's riddle is not going to be funny. Okay, I'll just give you a heads up. It's much more profound, uh, and uh, it's going to force the scribes to really take a look and it will actually cause us to question what we believe about him. So the text starts off like this. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 35 and following through the rest of the chapter. You can follow along your Bible, your device, or just what's on screen. Later, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, he's still in the temple. Later that day, after they've done, uh, they've exhausted their questions, Jesus asked why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, that seems like a an odd question because everybody, common Jews as well as all the religious leaders, believed that the Messiah was going to come from the tribe or the descendancy of David. Everyone believed that he would be a relative of David. So this is kind of a strange question. And some people suggest that Jesus was saying that he really didn't, but that's not his point. He's setting them up for what follows immediately afterwards, where he quotes something that David wrote from Psalm 110. And he says, For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Now, uh, this is going to get a little bit kind of like professory, but let me just point out a couple things. Um, do you see the first Lord? In, in this is written in Greek. Uh, well, it's in English on your screen. But the original is written in Greek, okay? In Greek, the word for Lord is kurios. Now, here in Greek, the word for the first Lord and the second are the same. But the writer and Jesus, Mark and Jesus, are quoting Psalm 110. 
And in Psalm 110, these are two different words. Okay? So this particular translation, the New Living Translation, is trying to highlight that difference. And the way, the way that they're doing that is, they're putting the first Lord in all caps. If you can see that, uh, it might be a little bit hard to see, but the first Lord is in small caps, and the second Lord is in just, first letter L is capitalized, and the rest are smaller. Now, why is that important? In the Old Testament, the word for God, the name for God, is often translated Yahweh or Jehovah. We're not really sure exactly how to pronounce it. The Jewish people would never pronounce, even try to uh, attempt to pronounce that name because that was the name of God, and they didn't want to take the, names, uh, the name of the Lord in vain or be mistaken in some way, and so they just avoided it. And every time they see those letters that make up Jehovah, or Yahweh, they would say out loud, Adonai, which means Lord. Okay? So what the newer translations do, they won't say Jehovah, they don't say Yahweh, they have Lord. But they put it in small caps as a way for us to know, oh, every time you're reading through the Old Testament, you see Lord with Small caps, all caps, that means that's Yahweh, or that's Jehovah, that's the name of God. So when you break down this particular text in, in Psalm 110, what David is writing is, Jehovah, the Lord, said to my Lord. This is what David says. So whoever this individual is, is someone who has a certain level of authority who is actually more important than David. Question is, who was he talking about? Well, the next part of the verse explains. He says, Jehovah said to whoever it is that was my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble all your enemies beneath your feet. Who does that sound like? Well, Initially, when Psalm 110 was written, it referred to the king of Israel or the king of Judah. God was setting up his kingship and he was setting up who was going to be the next in, in line. And as many places in the world still believe today, the supreme ruler, the king, the emperor, whoever it might be, was divine. So this text referred to God telling the king. But then after the kingdom of Israel was dissolved, and uh, after Jerusalem was destroyed in 586, then the attention shifted from a physical king to the messianic king, the Messiah. And, and so then the Jewish belief was, this is referring to the Messiah. Now, remember how Jesus started. Everybody knows that the Messiah is David's son or David's relative, someone who was born after David, comes from David's line. This verse kind of suggests that, well, if he came from David, then how can David say that he's his Lord? And that's exactly the question that Jesus is going to ask them. Since David himself called the Messiah my Lord... How can the Messiah be his son? So that's the riddle. Okay? I told you it wasn't going to have a funny ending. <laughs> the crowd listened with great delight. 
because they kind of halfway understood what he was talking about. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, okay, wait a second. So if, if I were to have a, 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 a relative, uh, some descendant of hallway that would end up being president of the United States, None of my current children uh, could do that because there's only one male and you have to be born in the United States uh, or of U.S. citizens to be able to be that, and he wasn't. So there is no possibility of a hallway, at least as far as we can tell, uh, uh, ascending the throne. But if there was a possibility, then I would say I'm talking about one of my kids, except he's more important than me hundreds of years later. And it's like, wait a second, either you're the relative or you're more important and you're kind of over. And they were just kind of they didn't know what to say. The crowd thought it was great to see that these Sadducees and these Pharisees and these scribes were scrambling around. They were probably pulling out the scrolls. They were probably talking with one another, but they didn't come up with a solution. Because what Jesus is trying to say is the Messiah is not just a physical human descendant of David. There's more to him than that. In fact, that thought is what's going to kind of unify this whole series of texts that we're looking at. The Messiah is not just a human leader. The biggest problem the Jewish people had, and especially the leaders with this concept of Messiah, was the Messiah was a physical leader, probably some sort of military leader, that would lead the Jewish people against the Romans, who would achieve independence, and who would finally put these no-good-for-nothing Gentile, pagan, heathen people in their place. But he was not divine, Jesus is here to say, yeah, he actually is. And that's why David could refer to him in the future as my Lord. He's referring to someone who wasn't going to be born for hundreds of years and yet says he's my Lord. So that was the situation that Jesus is trying to address. Sometimes things aren't always what they might appear to be. Jesus also taught... Beware of these teachers of religious law. For they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. And how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues, the head table at banquets. You know, when you go to a, a wedding uh, and, uh, and, and you see the, 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 the table list in the reception, it's kind of like, okay, so where am I sitting in relation to the head table? The closer you are, the better chance you're going to get your food first and, uh, and the more importance you'll have. And then when someone gets table number 20 out of uh, 19, then um, they, <laughs> they, they look, hey, can you want to swap up? Uh, I've known some to actually exchange uh, places and they ended up at the children's table uh, because they didn't realize that that was the children's table before they moved. And, um, but, but we're jockeying for position. And, and so the religious leaders, the teachers of religious law, had these robes that they would wear. Now, typically they would wear them while they were studying and while they were working. But they thought, wow, I look so good in my office, and no one can see me, 
just think of the impact this would have on the common people if they could see me with these floors. So they would wear them out in public. And everyone would look at them and they would say, Ooh, who's he wearing today? They liked to receive greetings as people recognized who they were. They seemed important. But not everything is as it seems. They loved the seats of honor. In the synagogue, in some churches you've, you might have been to where they have a couple uh, benches up towards the front, and sometimes they call it the deacon's corner, and sometimes uh, it's, it's where people will sit. The amen corner sometimes it's referred to. But those were the seats of honor, the closest to the front. The seats of honor at the banquet is the closest to the individual, the host. And if you could be at the right hand, that was even better. But not only do they do these things just for show, this shameless, pretentious religiosity, they cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Beware of this and them. They will be more severely punished. Widows in ancient days were in a rough position, Not that things have changed drastically, but at least life insurance and other kinds of uh, uh, social systems are in place to help all individuals, but especially those that don't have uh, family specifically to, to provide for them. But in ancient days, if you were a widow without a living uh, 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 member of the family, uh, you, you relied on the generosity and the kindness of the local synagogue or the temple to provide food on a daily basis. And these individuals who, on the one hand, appeared so religious, on the other hand, were robbing the poorest of the poor out of their property, out of their houses, out of their inheritance, what it might have been. And Jesus doesn't have enough harsh words. In Matthew, chapter, uh, in Matthew he, he gets much more specific and much more prolonged in his condemnation of these individuals. But he warns the people listening, These religious leaders aren't all that they seem to be. Now, since I am a member of that group of individuals that would be the religious leaders, and that is my profession, not all clergy or professional ministers or people who live uh, 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 in this kind of fashion have these kinds of situations, but there are a lot of people even today that do, unfortunately. And so Jesus' warning is as much true today as it was then. Be careful. Don't get, don't get uh, uh, blinded by the showiness. Don't get wrapped up in all of the, the, uh, the glamour and the glitz. Um, uh, there, there are some preachers who like to see themselves as preachers to the stars uh, or preachers to the celebrities, the rich and famous. But uh, at the end of the day, if we're honest and we're sincere about what we're doing, it doesn't matter who is in our congregation. We are God's servants to guide his people, whoever they are. Now, the only <laughs> caveat that I would say is whenever I'm back preaching in Memphis, um, 
one of the congregations that partnered us for many, many years uh, uh, had five uh, PhDs in the congregation, uh, like PhDs, like religious PhDs. And, and I would always get so nervous before preaching the Bible to my Bible professors and uh, just uh, just uh, fearful that I would make a mistake in my exegesis, my preparation or, or my delivery. One of my preachers was the preach uh, was the uh, homiletics preacher, uh, the preaching teacher and uh, the homiletics professor. And so uh, I, I get nervous. Even thinking about it, just kind of, uh, um, and and it's not a good thing. But some of them have passed, and so now I can go back and not be quite as worried as I was before. But anyway, <laughs> now as Jesus is in the outer court, the temple area, he's noticing people putting money into the various. This translation says collection boxes, right? They, they were actually in the shape of a horn, like a shofar, like the ram's horn, or like a French horn. And, and, and the narrow part would be at the top, and then it would kind of circle down, and then the bottom part uh, was the larger area where all the coins would fall in. And, and they didn't have paper money in those days, and so the larger the coin, the more the value. Kind of makes sense. I always didn't understand why the dime was so small compared to the nickel. Uh, and and is, wait a second, this is more than the... And, and so anyway. So, so what they would do is they, they, they would clang. They were made out of brass. And, and the more coins you put in, the larger the clang and the more attention that was drawn. So he's sitting down and watching as crowds and individuals put money in, and many of them, I'm sure, did it out of a pure heart. And even the rich who put in large amounts, they came with their large bags. And some of them would draw a little bit more attention to themselves than others. It made me think about a, a, a guy that, uh, uh, that, that they were, it was a, a social club, and they were taking subscriptions for donations, and the gentleman stood up and said, I want to give $100, but anonymously. I don't want my name associated. I don't want anyone to know. I want to give $100, but anonymously. Well, these individuals would give large amounts, and they would be anonymous, yet they wanted people to notice. And as they were doing this, a poor widow, not just a widow, but a poor widow, comes probably unassuming, behind this stage, behind the other individuals, and dropped in two small coins. Now, this is where, in the older translations, they refer to as a mite, or a M-I-T-E, a small coin. So this is where you get the story of the widow's mite. Two small coins that was worth one-sixty-fourth of a day's wages. So if you're working minimum wage today in Miami, then this is probably going to be less than a dollar. It's not just a couple pennies. It's something significant, but it's not enough to buy the basic meal. And she comes in and puts in two small coins. Jesus calls his disciples together and makes this a teaching moment. He says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. 
seems kind of odd. People were putting in perhaps hundreds of dollars. This was the Passover time. There were a lot of people that were were amping up their giving uh, uh, in order to look good before God and also out of the generosity of their hearts at this particular time. And yet Jesus says that she gave more. For, Jesus explains, they gave a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything that she had to live on. So the contrast between the loud clattering of all these coins and this poor widow who drops in uh, two copper coins, two pennies as it were, is significant. It's in a way a physical demonstration of what we saw last week, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here she is putting in everything that she had. Commentators point out that she had two coins. She could have kept one. wouldn't have been much, but it would have been something. And yet she put both in. And so what we see for Jesus and for God, the value of a gift is not in the amount given, but the cost to the giver. How much did it cost this individual? Many gave what they could spare, but the poor widow gave all that she had. Others gave from their surplus, but she gave from her very need. Warren Buffett has donated a whole bunch of money to the Bill Gates Foundation. And when I say a whole bunch, I mean like $25 billion. In an interview, he said, my gift, as big as it is, $25 billion, I can't even comprehend how much money that is. He said of his $25 billion, my gift has not changed my lifestyle one bit. Now, Warren Buffett lives a very modest lifestyle. Nonetheless, my gift has not changed my lifestyle one bit. I still go to the movies. I still eat at the restaurants I want to eat at. But what about the person who gives a gift that requires that they can't go to the movies or can't eat out? They are the true givers, the true heroes of generosity. Because what Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter the amount. What it matters is how much did it really cost you? And if you give tons of money and yet it doesn't affect your life in any kind of way, it's not really sacrificial. It's not really giving all that you have, as this widow did. And so Jesus is saying, don't give till it hurts. (laughs) What he's suggesting is give till it's gone, which is a radical, radical thought. Scares me. Philip Yancey said in one of his uh, articles he was writing about money, he says, the thing that I dislike about this whole conversation is is that we have to talk about it. I would prefer just not even to talk about it at all. I don't want to be bothered by thinking about money or thinking about what I'm not giving or how much I should be giving. It, It would just be easier if we didn't have to think about it at all. Except for Christian people, there's one problem. 
Jesus talked about it a lot. (laughs) He talked about it a lot. Because for Jesus, what we do with what we have indicates where our heart and our priorities are. So not only is the amount something that should affect me to the point where it changes my lifestyle. Now I want you to think about that for just a second. We're going to pass the plates in just a little bit, or you've already set up your online giving. How much of what you put in this week will change your lifestyle? Will make you say, no, I'm not going to eat out because I'm giving to church. I'm not going to eat out because I donated to this particular organization. I'm not going to be able to do these things that I had planned because we're setting aside this money so that we can give it to a mission effort or whatever charitable organization you're thinking about. This donation that the widow gave changed her lifestyle. And so for Jesus, that was admirable. She gave her all. The the other thing that we know about giving from other scriptures is that when it comes to giving, the posture of our heart makes all the difference. You know, when, when I write my check to the IRS, they don't really care whether I'm doing it cheerfully, if I'm doing it begrudgingly, if I'm cursing and raining down fire from heaven on them as I write this check. They don't care. Money's money. But for God, it's a little bit different. For God, it's a little bit different. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames and have not love, doesn't do any good. So if I give a penny with a widow's heart, it makes all the difference in the world. And the fact that Jesus called his disciples together, I think, suggests that he was making this a teaching moment, not just for his disciples then, and not just for Mark's readers when they received this gospel and they began to study through it in their congregation some uh, 20 to 30 years later, but even for us today. And, And I think what we see is that in this last public teaching before he begins to teach specifically to his disciples and before he gets ready to go to the cross, what he's saying is this is the attitude and the lifestyle that he's been talking about all along. When he called the disciples, they left everything, family, profession, surroundings, comfort to follow Jesus. Over and over through this gospel, we've read how if you want to be my disciple, it's going to cost. And what we've done in today's world, unfortunately, and I'm as guilty as the next guy is, we've tried to make discipleship into something that won't mess up your life too much. You can follow Jesus and keep on doing everything that you want to do. You can go to church and you can be a Christian and and it doesn't have to affect your lifestyle. And what Jesus is telling us over and over If you follow me, it's going to hurt. And maybe not physically, but it will hurt economically. It will be a challenge to you. And it might even hurt physically. Because I think the widow's offering, given all that she has, is really a picture 
of what Jesus did when He laid down His whole life for us. And rather than thinking only about Himself and what would be more convenient and what would be more pleasurable and what would be better for Him, Jesus is ready now to follow the path that God has set out. And He invites His disciples and He invites us to follow along. Discipleship is not easy. And that's why we don't do it. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. And so this is a challenge for us today in 2019. As we think about what does it cost me to follow God? What has it cost me? And what will it cost me in the future? And what Jesus' answer is, everything you have. Everything you have. The widow's might, yep, it'll cost you that. Your family and friends, sometimes it might cost you that. Your, your lifestyle choices and the things that you like to do, for it might cost you that. It might cost you your very life. And as the disciples found out, Jesus meant that seriously, as many of them ended up crucified, murdered, assassinated, as they gave their testimony about who Jesus is. In today's world, most of us don't have to worry about that. There are Christians who still struggle with that. They struggle with being persecuted physically. If you knew that you run the risk of being physically injured if you came to church next Sunday, would you come? I don't know that I would come, but I guess I have to. But would you? I don't know that I would. I might call in sick that day. But you know, there's churches in Africa and the other places where any given Sunday, they might be attacked. Any given moment, Christians, just because they wear the name Christian, are singled out for abuse, for mistreatment, and, and just all kinds of horrific things. Following Jesus is not a walk in the park. It's a walk to the cross. And part of the challenge is for us to accept that. The good news is we're not alone. Jesus is with us. He's already gone. He's already paved the way. He's done the heavy lifting, as it were. And we're not alone because we have other family with us. And so as you go through this week... And as you think about the challenges that you're facing, let me simply just encourage you to think about how much does it cost? Not in terms of dollars and cents. How much does it cost? And then to know that sitting and standing right beside you and next to you and behind you in front of you are other people who are also making that same choice. At their jobs, they're choosing to follow God even though it might mean no promotion, even though it might mean a demotion, even though it might mean unpleasant circumstances. In their school, it might mean the kids make fun of them, but they're going to follow through. In their family, in their neighborhood, in all the decisions of life, there are brothers and sisters in this church who are making those decisions every single day. And we thank God for you. And just as Jesus praised this widow, 
we lift up our voices among the elders and the ministers and the staff to thank God for your decisions to follow God, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we can pray for you today, if we can hold your hand, if we can walk beside you and help you as you travel down this journey, we, we know it's not easy, and you can't and shouldn't do it alone, and we want to walk with you. If you've made the decision to follow the Lord through baptism, we would love to help you with that. We're going to stand and sing, and we'll be at the front here to receive you. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Lord.